The following Noble Path talk is part of an informal series offered to Sangha members over Zoom during monthly online meetings for those who've been practicing at the Zen Center of New York City, Fire Lotus Temple. Each Sangha member shares their experience of how they came to find the Dharma and how their practice has been developing. We hope you enjoy the diversity of voices and experiences. Thank you for listening. Thank you for this opportunity to, to share with you. Um, you know, we all come to our practice with a story. Of, usually it's a story of a desire or an itch or an unfulfilled need that brought us, um, I say, to the temple because I'm a temple practitioner for the most part. Um, and this was a talk that was originally done for temple folks, but brings us to practice. Um, and each one of those stories, you know, desires, itches are very personal to each one of us. Um, and so and sharing my story or my desire, my itch with you, um, I know some of it's going to resonate with you. And it's, some of it's going to be like completely foreign and you'll be like, I don't get that. Um, and so that's kind of like a part of what makes it a little bit um, scary because, I'm, I, you know, when you're about to share, you're afraid that no one's going to get you. Um, but I am practicing being courageous and I am practicing stepping out of my comfort zone. So I took this up um, and in my Sagittarian way, I just decided to, to do it without thinking about it very much. And then afterward, I thought, Oh my God, what did I decide to do? <laughs> um, so I need to go back a bit to my personal religion and, and religious upbringing because those things are important um, to understand my relationship to the practice, to the temple, uh, to the sangha. My parents, my grandparents, my great grandparents all are from Puerto Rico. Um, during my parents' lifetime, my grandparents' lifetime, this was roughly divided um, between Catholic and Protestant. Uh, my grandmother was Catholic, uh, and when she came to New York City with my mother, she brought with her all of the saints, the big red glass enclosed candles that you see in the bodegas, um, the rosaries, the sacred heart, the crucifixes, all the stuff that Catholics had. And she added to those things Puerto Rican things like magic, bartering with saints, a deep belief in malevolent spirits, ghosts, um, evil eyes, all that stuff. So when I was growing up, religion was ever present. It was, it was daily, really. Um, but it wasn't tied to the church. Um, my family believed that the church was corrupt um, and was a subject of deep suspicion. But it was daily in that we prayed every night. Uh, in everything we did, it was, si Dios quiere, Dios te bendiga, Dios te lo paga. So Dios, as you probably know, is God. God is everywhere. God was all seeing. Things were done by the grace of God. Things were done with God's permission. God was thanked. Um, so maybe it's understandable that in my 20s, I became very Catholic. Um, it's a church Catholic, which my family was not. Uh, but they accepted it the way they accept everything, which is as long as your family comes first, as long as what you're doing is not getting in the way of your family, then it's okay. Um, that church Catholicism lasted for about five years. And it all dropped away, though, when I, when I realized that I hadn't really scrutinized what I believed in and was willing to live by. And then when I held up one article of Catholic faith up to my own scrutiny, one after the other, I couldn't stand by them. I didn't feel them to be truly mine. 
So I walked away from all religion. And for a while, I walked away from the belief in God. Um, and this is going to sound strange, but I did this kind of as a religious person. I, I don't know what makes one person religious and another one not. But when I walked away, I was unhappy. Um, but I made up my own rules to live by, I, or I thought that they were mine. They had to do with hard work and perseverance. And they were really just my family's code. Um, so the unwritten family code was never stop moving onward and upward, keep going, don't look back. If you fall down, you get back up again. And in a sense, that was my truest religion. My family may have referred to God every day, but I had the sense that if God got in my mom's way, that God would have a battle on his hands. Um, my family had come from Puerto Rico to first to live in the Lower East Side. This is a very traditional um, trajectory for Puerto Rican families coming to New York. They come to the Lower East Side, then they moved to Spanish Harlem, um, which at the time was called Spanish Harlem because everybody spoke Spanish and those were Puerto Ricans. Um, then they moved to East New York, uh, where seven of us lived in a two bedroom, roach infested, cold in the winter, hot in the summer, rundown apartment that we were grateful for because it wasn't the projects. And my mom felt deeply that the projects was the worst place to live. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's how we were raised. And um, there was a sense that, well, we were here now, but we were going to keep working. And one day we would not be here. We would not be living in this place. And that's essentially what happened. We moved from Brooklyn to Queens. It was safer. It was cleaner. It was a little bit more room, um, a little bit more room, not a lot more room, just a little bit more room. Um, in terms of religion, years go by while I take up yoga and meditation. Uh, I go back to believe in something godlike because life felt better that way for me. So I felt like a lot inside of me, the tightness and the attitude were becoming looser. So when I walked into the temple for a poetry class with Takuse Twitchell, who was then just Chase Twitchell, um, I knew one thing, and that was that I did not want to want meditation as a path. It was hard. I had a very active mind. By this point, I was a lawyer, married, living in the suburbs, two young daughters. I had honestly done more than what my parents had expected of me. I had, by going to law school, by marrying a lawyer, the whole thing was beyond what my parents thought was possible. But I had abided by the greater family religion of achievement. Um, even so, I was struggling. Um, I had feelings of loneliness, feelings of despair. On the one hand, I was very grateful for my life and I knew that life could be different. And so I was feeling guilty for not feeling happier. Um, but I had a gnawing feeling inside of me um, that what looked like a perfect life on the outside was far from perfect when it was being lived by me on the inside. Um, and this is like the hardest part to like explain or talk about because I was deeply unhappy and unsure of myself even though none of that was really visible. Um, I didn't know how to put into words what was missing, but it was affecting my decision-making in really bad ways. And so when I picked up the temple's brochure um, with the sitting schedule and the service schedule all laid out, I knew it was gonna come because there was something about the smell and the stillness of the place, even in the middle of a poetry workshop. I could feel this underlying calmness and that called to me. Even in the moments, the worst moments in my life when I've been called crazy, 
or felt crazy, there's a nugget of sanity inside. And the sanity inside has a whisper and they're saying that there's a way home. There's a way through. And I think it was something inside the temple was answering that call. But I still whispered a little prayer. And I said, please, God, don't let the path be meditation. Anything but meditation. That paradox, um, the one that's calling me to stillness and also had me dreading it, that say being in paradox is what I've come to know is my practice. Um, and there's another paradox worth mentioning now, and, one, and that's the one around silence. Um, because silence when you're a woman and a person of color can be a sharp and even bitter idea. Um, when you come from a dysfunctional family, which I did, even though I love deeply, um, silence is a form of oppression. That's a way where everybody wants you to say, sit down, shut up, everything over here is okay, don't criticize, don't question, don't rock the boat. As a woman, I was told many times by oppressive men and by oppressive systems that my true sense, my perspective was not required. Um, but there's silence and then there's silence. The silence of meditation is integral and essential to finding your true voice. And that's what was true for me. And it's a paradox that I love. And it reminds me of what the, the doctors of homeopathy or the herbalists say, that the cure grows near the cause. Um, the oppressive silence that was born of other people's need to silence me ended up being a silence that I cultivated for myself and brought me to a true and saner sense of myself. So I was comfortable with being silent and listening when I got to the meditation hall. I needed silence to be comfortable with finding and talking my truth out loud. So after the workshop with, with um, Takase, I came back about a week later for the Sunday talk. Um, and Shugan was there and he was giving the talk and Shugan's talk struck me almost like seeing a burning bush. I was struck with how it felt. Uh, he was talking to me about my life and was giving me a remedy for what was ailing me. Just to be clear, I hated almost everything else that was going on. I had to sit, which I hated. I hated the gray robes. I hated the bowing. I hated the chanting. Um, I counted maybe two people of color in that zendo. And whenever I come into a white space, I count the people of color that I can visually see. And I was like, no, 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 no. Then I heard the talk and the sanity inside of me responded to the talk. Um, no one ever tells you to stop, to gather yourself, to pause, and that that's a necessary part of living. That amid the pressure to keep going, that there should be time for stillness. But Shugan told me that. Um, and I responded to it. And I thought, I could put up with this other stuff. No people of color, gray robes, chanting. I want to hear that again. Um, and the other stuff I had to put up with, like I said, I wasn't small. I did not find the Sangha at that time particularly friendly. Few people stayed behind to talk. There's a cookie plate upstairs afterward. Um, after the talk, we were supposed to gather, but not a soul came up to me, even though I stood by that cookie plate waiting. Um, I felt alone, but I said to myself, I don't care. What he's offering, what this place is offering is what I need. So whenever I saw Shugen, who I was giving the talk, come back upstairs to the Buddha hall after the talk, I would just wait patiently, almost was like a, 
there's the back that then it was almost like a line that formed right to talk to the person who had given the talk especially if it was so um i would just wait patiently i would ask my questions and then i would go i actually went home to look up the chance because i was afraid i was calling down some malevolent ghosts my mother would hate it if i was doing that i was like i don't know what i'm saying but i better check this out so i did and I, it was okay um and then i began coming back more and more of the three treasures i felt that this was my encounter with the dharma and it's what pulled me in i didn't think that i would become a student i didn't want to share the details of my life and my mind and my heart with a total stranger a white man no less who i had nothing in common with i planned probably like many to just sit listen to the dharma talk ask some questions for clarity get out so i attended the temple for 5 or 6 years before i felt the turning within me that deeply wanted to become a student and i know this is different other people can go in there 2 weeks later they know they want to become a student not me it took a long time i felt i there's literally was something inside of me that turned and said now is the time student um and then from that now to asking and actually becoming a student was probably another year um and when i became a student i understood it to myself as taking full responsibility for my life and i really liked that idea i totally fit with this gung ho can do spirit i inherited my fam from my family i hated my childhood i wanted to be an adult i wanted to take responsibility i was like take responsibility for my life yes lay it on me it's good little did i know <laughs> how hard that can be But my encounter with the Buddha, another of the treasures, has been slower. So there was no there's been no burning bush moment, but it occurs when I read the words of the Buddha because I feel like I'm on his mind, that I am on his mind, that he is trying to find a way to get me to understand what he's saying. So he says it a thousand times, different ways, over and over. He tells me that if I have a moment, a nanosecond of enlightened mind that I can end the chain of ceaseless suffering. a nanosecond i can do this what comes to cross to me is a master teacher someone who believes in their students and is just trying to get them to believe in themselves and i find the buddha to be kind this way and to be generous and not withholding to be modeling how to behave and as a teacher myself as i teach high school english i appreciate this totally so my relationship with the buddha himself and as living within me is an evolving one I find that reading his words as best as we have them is the best way to me for me to feel closer and to take him off of the altar and into my heart and life. I'll be honest, that was another surprise, but the surprise only occurs when you actually allow the surprise the space to occur. I literally picked up the words of the Buddha and started reading them and then I thought, "Oh, he's talking to me." And then he was no longer just a figure on the altar. The third treasure, the sangha. Uh, in the beginning of my practice, I had great disdain for the idea of sangha. I didn't see it. I just saw a collection of individuals. I didn't feel it. No one seemed to notice me, let alone make me feel like I was part of a community. I didn't think I needed it at all. All I needed was to listen, sit, study. I felt deeply uncomfortable being a person of color in an almost all-white sangha. No one seemed to be friendly. um that has changed by the way but that's how it was when i got there and that's how i felt anyway um 
I don't really make small talk easily. I tend to just like go diving into deep things. Um, so just trying to be around to make small talk was a strain for me. But the Buddha said that the Buddha of the future would be the Sangha. The Buddha said of the three treasures, the Sangha was most important. So now what? Or what the Buddha says, right? So I pushed myself to begin to fill in the gaps in friendliness and warmth I felt were missing. As soon as I put on the students' robes, I felt I had a responsibility to others as well as myself, right? Uh, at first, it was just kind of modeling, like how to do this or that. But as I began to take on service positions, I felt like I was growing while I was learning. Now I was part of making the service go well. And the service became an offering to others. And the more I offered the, to others, the larger my sense of responsibility to the Sangha grew. And the more I wanted to be sure that I was doing it well, and the more care I gave to service, the more love started to grow. And it felt mutual. Whatever I was giving, I was also feeling back. And that's also to, back to the idea of paradox. You know, how does that happen? You don't know it until you go through it and until you do it. And then, and then the, to try to pull the thread back to how it began is impossible, but yet it's occurred. If someone had said, oh, yes, you'll feel greater love the more love you give, you're like, how does that happen? You'll feel greater community by giving, being of service. You're like, no, I'm just giving. But it doesn't. It, it happens. Um, this was unexpected and inexplicable to me. But becoming a Jakai student um, and growing in my commitment to service became acts of love and faith and devotion that I hadn't felt since I was Catholic. Everyone has a different reason for entering practice and for each step they take along the path, becoming or not becoming a student, taking the precepts or not. For me, the decision to, be, to become a Jukai student occurred about five years after becoming a student. Um, and this is very personal again, like all of our journeys, but it was when I felt the need to believe in a larger deity, to believe in a God, when that fell away is when I felt I could become a Jukai student. Um, it wasn't like 20 years ago or 25 years ago when I thought um, I'm gonna stop believing in God now, right? This just fell away. The more comfortable I became with living in uncertainty and not, not having to know an answer, the more comfortable I became with not having to decide that something was good or bad or deserved or undeserved or what was gonna happen if I did that. The more comfortable I became in that, the more the need for me to believe um, in a larger deity and a God figure fell away. And then I was ready to take the precepts. Um, and again, I know some people become a student and one year later, they're ready to take the precepts, but that's just not me. I have to fight my way through it all. I have to feel every year of living it. Um, I don't think I stopped being a religious person ever. I'm very comfortable with religious structure and with the idea of vows and devotional practice and faith. Um, I didn't expect it to take the forms that it's taken. I didn't expect devotion to Sangha as being one of the shapes of religion for me. I didn't expect the temple building itself to feel like a sentient being to be cared for. I didn't expect to feel tenderness toward the Buddha or love and respect for my teacher and all the teachers to be a part of this. But all these unexpected things happen when we practice long and deeply together. 
but these, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> during when I first um, was writing this talk, it was at the end of session, and Kaido, who lives in New Zealand, um, had delivered a talk, and I had listened to it, and she talked about the verse of the Kesa, um, and how it's a formless field of benefaction, and that's what it feels like I'm growing into as a Jukai student, that I'm touching everything, and that I'm being touched by everything, that there are no boundaries, and there's less and less withholding. Most recently at the temple, I've been serving as a monitor. And if you don't know the temple, because it's mostly lay-based, we take on positions as, as lay students that, that would usually only be filled by monastics at the monastery. So I, I was taking on the role as a monitor, uh, making the announcements at the end of service, and I found that this really fit me well. As a monitor, I get to be helpful to people in their sitting, I get to say the first non-liturgical words that people have said, listened to in like three hours. Um, I want those words to be warm and welcoming. Um, I am lifted in my practice when I try to make my practice, even the announcements, a service to others. And I think it happens when your frame of mind is turned toward what I call positive doubt, which embraces the unknowability of the results of your effort but believes these efforts are worthwhile anyway. We're not sure, but we're curious. And we let go of a negative doubting mind, which is a cynical and narrow and doubts the possibility of good surprises. So the journey for me is one that continues to unfold and it's going deeper than I thought possible. Um, and it's been full of joyful surprises. And I ask myself to where does the journey lead and because I'm an English teacher, I have to quote a poet. It's the poet Novalis. And to the answer, where does the journey lead? Where are we really going? Always home. Thanks for listening. Did you know that Zen Mountain Monastery is live streaming all Dharma talks and daily Zazen during the coronavirus quarantine? Visit our website to learn about all the online programs being offered at this time. Just go to zmm.org and click on the link at the very top of the page, or scroll down and click on Retreats.